as a, a journalist, I just wanted to know who had cracked this nut, who had finally made Baghdad safe. The Americans couldn't do it. It wasn't possible in the mid 2000s, but now here it is. And so that simple journalistic question led me to to Abu Ali al Basri's office. This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. You're listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. WERA is part of Arlington Independent Media. A new nonfiction book sets the record straight on Iraq in the years following the 2003 U.S. invasion. Journalist Margaret Coker is the author of The Spymaster of Baghdad. This historical account of the shadowy world of espionage reads like a John le Carré spy novel. This is a special one-hour real fiction episode. I'll be back in a moment with Margaret Coker. My guest today is Margaret Coker. Her new book, The Spymaster of Baghdad, was just released. Coker is a former New York Times bureau chief in Baghdad. This book is a true account of an elite top secret team of unlikely spies who triumphed over ISIS. Margaret Coker is an investigative journalist who for the last 19 years has covered stories from 32 countries on four continents. Since the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, Coker has largely focused on the Middle East, including reporting on Muammar Gaddafi for the Wall Street Journal. She is now the editor-in-chief of The Current, an investigative news startup in her hometown of Savannah, Georgia. And if you've listened to Real Fiction, you know that I am particularly fond of character-driven nonfiction. Because when a reader is introduced to ordinary citizens performing extraordinary tasks, it opens up complex political events and history in a relatable way. Spymaster of Baghdad is narrative nonfiction of the highest order, gripping and informative. This book achieves a core mission to recalibrate historical accounts of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And again, it sheds light on the little-known Falcons, a team of spies responsible for restoring order in Iraq. Here to discuss this compelling story is Margaret Coker. Margaret, welcome to Real Fiction. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Since 2003, you've lived in and traveled to Iraq, and you've reported from all over the world, but... Iraq has been central to your recent reporting life. What drew you to focus on espionage in Baghdad? Well, it's um, it's been a roundabout um, a roundabout curve of my professional life. I grew up in a military family, uh, you know, a child of the Cold War. I actually studied Russian and um, and international affairs, and I've always wanted to be a foreign correspondent. So. 
you know, by virtue of the end of the Cold War, the breakup of the former Soviet Union, I went from a focus of working in Moscow and covering Russia to uh, to Afghanistan and then the Middle East after the 9-11 attacks. So it really was the way that the news cycles work. I, I went where the news was and ended up spending more time in the Middle East than I ever did in the former Soviet Union. But Having, having this military family background, we grew up watching World War II movies every week. You know, I am a, um, a devotee of spy novels and, and nonfiction um, tales about the Cold War. And it always struck me as I spent more and more time in Iraq, you know, we all understand the chaos after 2003 when the Americans had toppled Saddam and everyone was trying to rebuild the nation. That when even after World War II with the Marshall Plan, all of these institutions of countries that had been defeated in war or were trying to rebuild after huge traumas, you had to rebuild institutions. And that meant both military and police, but also intelligence. And in the Middle East, you know, the ways that dictators stayed in power so long, including Saddam Hussein, was that they controlled everything about um, about everyone's way of life. They had spies everywhere. They had informers everywhere. And so to reform these intelligence agencies was one of the key parts of re, uh, recalibrating how Iraq would function, how citizens would view their new government. And then we add in this whole complexity about Islamic terrorism and the way in which that this bloodshed was tearing apart the fabric of the nation. So... Finding these human characters who are helping to both maneuver through the political corridors of power in Baghdad, trying to rebuild their nation and defend it against all of these different threats. It seemed like, uh, you know, high drama, but also the human element of the Iraqis who have been sacrificing for years to try and help their country become a better place to live. Well, in this book, uh, and again, the title is The Spy Master of Baghdad, it centers on a man named Abu Ali al-Basri. Um, his story, his life, sheds a lot of light on how he came to the world of espionage. I mean, he didn't really dream of becoming a spy, but as you lay out in the story, his backstory had a, a, very, a very key role in how he came to this world. How did you learn about this man who is known as the spy master who led this team of spies called the Falcons? Yeah, Abu Ali al-Basri was a... Um is, is definitely a, a central and unheralded figure in the way in which that Iraq has been uh, successful in in carrying out its just natu- natural defenses, right? When, when you have bombs, multiple bombs going off in Baghdad uh, each day in the mid-2000s, and then you have this juggernaut, um, terrifying juggernaut known as the Islamic State taking over a third of the country um, just in the last three or four years. So Abu Ali al-Basri was a man who is, you know, been working in the shadows. He is the classic real-life uh, character that someone like John Le Carré would have um, would have written about in in fiction. But life, of course, is always stranger and more interesting than fiction. I think Abu Ali al Basri um, uh, had a chance to come back to Iraq after being forced into exile uh, because Saddam Hussein's intelligence agents were after him um, back in the 1980s. So he came back to Iraq and and worked to try and rebuild one of these key intelligence pillars of the nation and really determined as someone who's 
spend a lot of time um, as a victim of the brutality of, of Saddam's regime and then having a chance to live outside of Iraq to see how modern intelligence um, agencies work, how respect and dignity and uh, all of these virtues that we hold dear in America should play a role in the way that government treats its citizens. He came back with this idealism um, in after 2003 and worked his way through the through the very messy and chaotic and dangerous corridors of power to um, to take control, um, build and take control of over this the small and elite unit that has been helping the Americans behind the scenes with most of their counterintelligence victories in Iraq over the last fifteen years. You know, when I was reading about the structure of surveillance and security uh, that was in place in Iraq when al-Basri came back to Iraq, there was a huge billion-dollar um, American funded structure in place that the prime minister felt rather beholden to because of some of the key individuals that were in very influential positions of power. So the, the al-Basri and the Falcons kind of was operating on the periphery of this big structure at the beginning. Is, is that correct? Right. So if um, your listeners might recall all of those books that we, we read 15 years ago after, after 2003, the tales about the green zone and American imperialism and yes. the, you know, the, the challenges and the failures of how America tried to rebuild Iraq's institutions. One of the things that we know a lot about is the way in which that the U.S. military worked to rebuild Iraq's uh, armed forces, in part because the victors of, of wars always get to tell um, the tales and history is often reflected in, in their experience. So the military, U.S. military has had no problem um, crowing about, about all the things that they did incredibly well in Iraq and, and some of the traumas that individual officers and, and, and soldiers experienced while in Iraq. And what we didn't know a lot about are the intelligence battles as well, in part because that's the world that spies live in, right? It's, it's the world of the yeah. shadows. But rebuilding these, these institutions from the ground up, it's, it's you know, just as fascinating as it would have been in the 1920s and 30s when America was trying to build its own overseas security services and you know, the CIA. You have to start with good people and you have to start with, with the right people in place. So one of the one of the things that the American government did was spend a billion dollars for uh, for several years every year to rebuild the intelligence services. And uh, back in the early two thousands, there was quite a you know quite a binary view about who the good guys were and who the bad guys were. In the axis of evil of of President um, George Bush's years, you know Iran was definitely in the bad guys list. And America was uh, determined not to let people who were considered or labeled pro-Iran to be part of, of these new intelligence and security structures. So, in fact, I think history shows that the Americans chose the wrong guy. He was the CIA's guy. And for several years, he, um, he made a complete mess of Iraq's intelligence uh, services. And this is how Abu Ali al-Basri starts to maneuver very deftly through the political corridors and the political power games um, because his small unit that he was putting together was actually getting results. And um, from that point of view, again, it's, it's something that uh, anyone who reads John Le Carre can, can appreciate. Yeah, he's described in the book as a very um, mild-mannered, quiet, uh, reflective individual. He took time to consider every question you asked him before responding. 
And what's remarkable about reading about him now, we're a few years away from some of the books that you mentioned, the Green Zone books and the description that kind of in a sanitized way that explained what the Americans were doing in Iraq. But now we have a a different picture, a different lens into history. How did you make contact with Abu Ali al-Basri, did it take years of uh, inquiry? How did he come to trust you and open up and tell you his stories? Well, right. I think um, for the foreign correspondents who have been based in and out of Baghdad, there's always been this overarching question that we've always, you know, looked at and tried to answer, which is, you know, in the very bad days of the mid-2000s, why is it that that no one can keep Baghdad safe from terror attacks? And when the American uh, forces left and we finally withdrew in 2011, uh, you know, the Americans got a lot of blame for, for a lot of bloodshed in, in Baghdad, in part because the American forces themselves were targeted and, you know, thousands, if not tens of thousands of Iraqi civilians suffered um, as casualties of, of these bombings. So what America didn't realize, American, I think, security um, services and the American military didn't realize was that there actually were Iraqis who had tried to figure this out. They had, like Abu Ali al-Basri, been mapping out uh, many of the terrorist networks because many of the terrorist networks are Iraqis. They had the cultural awareness, they had the language, they had the tribal backgrounds to figure out who was the bad guys versus who might be suspicious, but but shouldn't be uh, detained in the Abu Ghraibs of the world. So Abu Ali al-Basri is one of these kind of men that for those of us in Baghdad, we, you know, he existed on the periphery of our knowledge because he never actually engaged with journalists. When the Islamic State, you know, there was a period of, of a lull in terms of the, the real onslaught of terrorism among Iraqis between 2011 and about 2013. And then the Islamic State reared its ugly head. The, the group uh, launched a blitzkrieg, took over a third of the Iraqi nation in, in the summer of 2014. And everyone in Baghdad at the time, embassies were, were starting to uh, issue emergency evacuation orders. There was talk about the second sacking of Baghdad, you know, these apocalyptic um, scenarios like the Mongol hordes had, had sacked Baghdad back in the Middle Ages. And then we all watched as the defenses around Baghdad held. And then when I went back to Baghdad um, in 2017 as the New York Times bureau chief, you had a completely separate reality there in, in the Iraqi capital. There was a huge ground force that was trying to push the Islamic State back um, out of Iraqi towns in northern Iraq. But Baghdad in, in 2017 was experiencing a renaissance. Instead of the sacking of Baghdad, you had um, small businesses that had restarted. You had families who felt safe to go outside at night, eat ice cream, play in parks. And Iraqis themselves felt like everything was safe there in the capital. And so as a, a journalist, I just wanted to know who had cracked this nut, who had finally made Baghdad safe. The Americans couldn't do it. It wasn't possible in the mid-2000s, but now 
here it is. And so that simple journalistic question led me to, to Abu Ali al-Basri's office. And he had his own motivations for talking to me. But it was clear that as you spend weeks and months asking the simple question, who would crack this nut to make Baghdad safe? Um, people, Iraqis in the know, kept pointing me to him. And so mm. that's how we began. That's how we began our serious relationship. Um, and that's how um, I started writing my first stories about him and the Falcons. What do you consider his key accomplishment in uh, the war against terror? Well, you know, I think that um, there's I, ev- this is not unique to Iraq. I think every every modern nation state deals with the uh, interagency rivalries of men and women who are incredibly ambitious and think that they know how to keep the na- their own nation safe. And in these silos of information um, and silos of government practice that then end up to, um, to be detrimental. You know, our 9-11 commission realized that without interagency cooperation, we were never going to be able to make America safe. Abu Ali al-Basri decided that he was going to, amid the chaos that was Iraq in the mid-2000s, he was going to build a team, a team that he could trust and train very professionally to do one very discreet mission. They weren't going to do 10 things, they were going to do one thing. They were going to go after the top al-Qaeda leaders in Iraq and use that, um, use that knowledge that they had of mapping these terrorist networks to build up their relationships with the Americans. So names that we don't remember or understand, Abu Ali al-Basri and his Falcons were key in getting very, very bad people um, out of commission and stop bloodshed in Iraq. He also managed to survive three different prime ministers, which is um, an enormous accomplishment in a very chaotic country. And When we got up to this new existential threat that Iraq was facing and the world was facing with the Islamic State, he managed to to put one of his officers um, in deep undercover inside this this terrorist organization and this almost real-time intelligence that he could could gather from from another one of my characters, Harith al-Sudani. You know that um, that turned the tide in in many ways for for the Iraqi war against the Islamic State, and it helped it helped Baghdad remain safe, which saved the lives of countless of countless of people there in the capital. Incredible! And the Al Sudani brothers, you just mentioned Harith Al Sudani, are uh, play central role in breaking down this story. Um, the incredible thing is that the Sudani brothers were again came to kind of espionage in the spy network in a, a rather remarkable way they were raised in the segregated part of Baghdad called Saddam City at the time when Saddam Hussein was in in power um, they became star members of this elite uh, spy force can you talk about uh, what the uh, al Sudani brothers role was in helping reduce these terrorist attacks in Baghdad. What made them so so powerful and unique in this force? Yeah, it's an amazing family. I mean, the Sudani family has, has been so generous to me in terms of their time and their openness and their willingness to engage with um, with a foreigner to to um, to be able to bring the the tales of bravery, but but also you know, in a lot of ways, family dysfunction to light. And so it's, it has been 
quite an honor to to be able to to tell their stories. I think as as a person, um, you know, I have I have a deep affinity to character driven nonfiction like you do, Lori. But I also really, if I'm if I'm honest, you know, I'm I'm actually quite partial to pot boilers. I will read any spy thriller that's on <laughs> an airport bookshelf, and so you know, the importance of character to me and as a writer and as a journalist is is very important. And and with the Sudani family, I had the chance to. T- tell human driven stories that that Americans just aren't familiar with at all. And in fact, you know, quite frankly, most Iraqis aren't familiar with the Sudani brothers come from the proverbial wrong side of the tracks. You know, the the people who um, who live in the slum of Saddam City, um, known after 2003 as Sadr City, you know, they were, they're the dregs of society. Not that they're bad people, just that when anyone lives on the wrong side of the tracks, stereotypes emerge about who they are yes. and how valuable or not they are to society. So the brothers have a classic, you know, a classic drama of their own. Um, they were rivals for their father's affections. They were rivals in their professional ambitions, and they are they were very close friends. And it turns out that the younger brother Munaf um, was the handler for his older brother Harith when he went undercover. It seems to be that I, I'm glad that you really liked the story. I'm glad that I could do justice to to the story. But in a lot of ways, that they these the Sudani family has the kind of innate drama that almost writes itself. They sure do. Can I ask a question about that dynamic? Because um, the father in the story is pretty tough on his sons. And I found this contrast really shocking in the Al-Sudani family. There's tough love. And then a moment later, the father is conducting poetry recitations. There's this amazing contrast with serving tea and food and who sits where at mealtime and these extraordinary dream expectations on Harith, who is the eldest son. So they shared all of this information with you as you were trying to gain fresh insight into this story. Yeah, I, I've over the course of, of my career, um, especially working in the Middle East, when I would come home to, to the States and talk to my friends and my family, you know, one of the first questions I usually got was, isn't it tough to be a woman working in the Middle East? Like the stereotypes of women, um, women there having drab and unfulfilled lives, and having having to deal with lots of patriarchal customs. Well, what I found when when I was working in the Middle East was, in fact, that being a woman um, could actually open a lot of doors for you. It meant that you had access to um, to the women of society first and foremost, mm. but it also meant that that. Um, Men in that society might underestimate you, and by them underestimating you, um, they didn't feel threatened, and they could tell you they would tell you their secrets. So I um, I found that you know when the doors were opened for me to tell the Sudanese stories, that like so many families in Iraq and across um, the Arab world, you know women play an incredibly dynamic role in how um, how children are raised, what decisions are made about people's, uh, their kids' professions, and, you know, the expectations of parents. A mother and a father both play huge psychological roles in all of our lives. So I had access to all of that. And, and one of the, you know, I think one of the interesting struggles as a journalist, it wasn't that um, people were reticent to talk to me, my characters, I spent months and months with them all. But what I found as someone 
who is an American who comes from an incredibly different cultural background was how to how to get Iraqis to talk to me about their innermost thoughts and feelings because they have a culture where that isn't shared. They, They don't have an Oprah Winfrey show. They don't have a Dr. Phil. They don't have an openness um, about sharing too much information, um, let alone emotional information. And so it was, um, I knew that I had gained their trust when people started telling me um, these sorts of aspects about their lives. And the brothers, you know, I was, it was for, for the, the very hard and strict um, demeanor that the father, um, uh, Abu Harith, has. You know, the, the experience of his son, um, the sacrifices of his son, Harith, he, I, he changed him as a person. He was, when I met him, incredibly struck by, by the sacrifice of his son. He was incredibly um, introspective and, and remorseful about his parenting style. And so I felt like almost as a therapist for Abu Harith, he didn't know that he needed one. I'm not sure that he would agree with me if he heard me saying this right now. But when anybody experiences a deep loss, yeah. you know, it helps to talk about it. And so I think with my reporting, it helped him come to grips with everything that um, that had happened to his family. Well, it, it's part of the the history now as a result of this book. I just want to remind listeners that my guest today is Margaret Coker. Her new book is titled The Spy Master of Baghdad. You're listening to Real Fiction on WERA 96.7 FM. We are going to take a short break. I'll be back in a moment with more of my conversation with Margaret Coker. This is Real Fiction on WERA 96.7 FM, Radio Arlington. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. We continue my conversation with Margaret Coker, author of The Spymaster of Baghdad. I love, Margaret, that you mentioned the women in the book. And there's another character I want to get to in just a moment. But the mother character in the al-Sudani family, uh, Um Harith, you know, she features prominently. And what I found quite extraordinary is that while this is a patriarchal society, the women, as I read it, are very much on the power grid. And and you just described kind of um, how that allowed you to gain entry into the al-Sudani family. There's a scene that uh, ensued when uh, one of the grandchildren in the house was at the local market when a bomb exploded in the neighborhood. And it was an incredibly stressful moment for the family. There was chaos. And it was really Um Harith. She said, everyone needs to calm down and have tea. The mother figure can calm a family and be that sort of psychological force. And when I related that back to another scene, um, Al-Basri, the spy master, who is the the sort of namesake of this book, he had had an innate understanding of how Iraqi families worked. And he had situations where he had uh, detainees, terrorist detainees, who he needed to crack. And there was a very compelling scene that in, in which he sort of restored the dignity of a detainee who was being tortured, cleaned him up, got him some fresh clothes, and um, ultimately played the I'm going to call your mother card. Yeah. So, you know, I had um, the great privilege of hearing all of these um, exquisite tales of wartime espionage, right? And unlike Hollywood, um, there are just so many small 
and quotidian moments where you realize that, you know, success is counted, not because there's a, a literal sort of ticking bomb that somebody is trying to, um, to snap the wires of, but because you actually understand the psychological dimension of the person sitting across the table from you. And so that was, that is Abu Ali al-Basri's skill. You know, that is why that whenever the U.S. is looking to keep our nation safe and you need local partners to help get to um, the people who are trying to, to do us harm, you need to have local partners like Abu Ali al-Basri. They know the culture, they know the psychological pressures people are under, and they know these very crucial um, crucial aspects of, about the ways in which you can pressure someone without waterboarding and without force just by trying to, like, leaning, leaning on their emotional uh, dependence and fragility about, um, about their mothers or about their older brothers. And so one of the goals of my book was to, you know, to make Iraq relatable to people who don't care about Iraq and people who don't care about Middle East politics, in part because these family dynamics are so compelling. And, and you have a lot of unsung heroes. And, and really, I think our ideas in America specifically is that you have these highly specific and specialized skills that, um, you know, our military does a great job of training people up on. And our intelligence agencies have a, amazing people working for them with very, very distinct, specific talents. But what we get back to, I think, with the story of Abu Ali al-Basri and the way in which that he both motivates his own team and then um, interrogates suspects is the real value of human intelligence and a real understanding of sociology and socioanthropology and just, you know, what makes people tick, right? I mean, the motivations for people yes. are key to understanding why they want to do us harm. And so um, I think this was this is why I personally, you know, had much more respect for Abu Ali al-Basri. Is he, is he and, you know, his interrogators who I had also access to and, and talked to, you know, they told me these just very, very straightforward stories about how to how to turn people. And it has nothing to do with high-tech intelligence. It has nothing to do with really expensive pieces of surveillance equipment. It has just, you know, simple, simple goals, which is how to make someone feel both comfortable and restore their dignity, and then um, get their mother on the phone and chastise them. For listeners who love narrative nonfiction and who have have a general interest in the Middle East. This is the kind of book that fills in gaps that have been missing. And, and I was struck by a comment that you have in the book. There is a common misperception in the West about the Islamic State, which is ISIS, uh, their demographic makeup, the number of foreign Muslims from Western countries who had fallen for the group's slickly produced propaganda campaigns were vastly outnumbered by the number of Iraqis and Syrians. So I came away with some revelations here. There were former Al-Qaeda members who had joined ISIS ranks. I confess I just didn't really think about uh, the connection because I thought of them as sort of two philosophically different groups. And number two was that in your book, there's this highly educated young Sunni woman. She joined ISIS ranks. And for me, this was a really compelling lesson about radicalization. And it, it helped me rethink about 
about how these propaganda techniques come into play, who's listening and who responds. What can you tell us about Abrar and what do you want to clear up about this misperception? Yeah, Abrar um, is compelling in her own right. I mean, from from a, how someone who seems to have it all can go off the rails and become a danger to society. Through my years of covering um, the war on terror and, and counterterrorism, you know, I have like, probably many of the listeners, you know, been struck by um, the amount of news pages and stories written about about Westerners who seem to fall into these um, rabbit holes of, of dangerous ideologies, but also women, you know, women who who seem to um, lose all agency in in many, at least English, um, English language um, news stories about female radicals. If somehow they they follow their husbands blindly to these war zones, or they seem to um, be zombies in in their um, devotion to ideologies that we don't understand and reject. But in fact, you know what I find really interesting and heartbreaking about Abrar is that she, like other women in my story, you know, she has her own agency. She had her own dream. She had her own ego and what she wanted out of life. And by virtue of the politics at play and these um, very bloodthirsty sectarian politics that, that Iraq was struggling through, her hopes and dreams were dashed. And she didn't have any other outlet for them. Um, she went online and she became radicalized by, you know, these these wormholes of disinformation and and radicalization that I think um, actually have some some really clear lessons for you know people in America today. It's a pretty um, it's a pretty depressing tale. Um, Abrar came from a middle class family. She had a parents who valued education. She had all of these doors shut to her and her professional ambitions um, as a scholar and researcher in Baghdad. And then she had um, a sister who was killed um, at a US military checkpoint. So there were lots of different steps as her parents were relating her history to me. And as you know, I got to interact with her um, by the time, you know, by the time I learned her story, she was already um, in prison. So I communicated with her via her mother, who was one of the only people allowed to see her in prison. I talked to her family. I had access to her interrogators and the notes from those interrogations. So building up a very a, a wide ranging and I think in-depth profile of a person who, who ended up throwing their life away um, in, in order really just to feel like she was being she was heard and that, and that somebody knew that she was alive. Um, she wanted to make her mark on her nation and all of those previously, you know, lovely dreams turned very rancid. Did you get the impression from uh, interviews and discussions with Abrar's mother that she is remorseful or regrets her actions or is she still resolute in believing she was following the correct path? Yeah, this was, um, I, I think, the most difficult conversations and interviews I had in my, in my research for Spymaster um, was with the Kubesi family. You know, they, they have, um, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a very human struggle that they're having. Nobody wants to admit that their child 
is capable of committing mass murder. Nobody wants to wants to face that um, aspect, but nobody wants to also face the the um, the very I think chilling um, perception of any parent and the fear of any parent that somehow you failed your child and they ended up um, a criminal um, or a terrorist. So you know these were these were very prickly discussions to have, and um, there are many many justifications that that the Kubasi parents have for their daughter's actions. One thing, again, that I think might be relatable to Americans right now, um, considering where we are as a society, you know, Iraq, there's a segment of Iraqis, the Sunnis, who lost power, right, and lost much of their, their political influence after the fall of Saddam Hussein. There is a, a strong tendency for, for large groups of Sunnis in Iraq to, um, to think of themselves as persecuted. There's reasons why, why they're right, um, but this persecution and victimization complex is something that as a society, uh, Iraqis are not doing a good job of dealing with very well. You know, white supremacists and radicals here in America right now also feel victimized. And the justifications for doing, um, for doing terrible things often come from that sort of persecution complex. So it took a long time for the Kubasis to, to kind of get through those um, lots of discussions um, where where they use that sort of justification with me a lot. I didn't, I mean, I really felt like if I was going to share their daughter's story with the world, I wanted to give readers a, you know, a fuller sense of who they are as a family and not reduce them to the stereotypical persecuted Sunni Iraqi, because they're not that. They're so much more than that. You know, they have, they've suffered a lot as a family. Um, as soon as uh, the Falcons swept in to, with their counterterrorism operation and um, arrested their daughter, they had to leave their, their neighborhood. You know, their neighbors, they were shunned by their neighbors. Everybody starts to feel nervous about having a terror suspect who used to live on the same block or the same street. And the entire family's um, reputation, of course, takes a brutal beating. And in these honor, in these cultures like Iraq, where honor and shame play huge parts of of both your, you know, the re- value of your family's reputation. It, you know, it's it's almost like you know Victorian England, or even further back. You know, people who watch Bridgerton understand. You know, the the way that one child's actions reflect on the entire family is massive and it's meaningful. And so the Kubasis um, had to sell their the house that they all lived in their whole lives. They had to move to another corner of Baghdad. I had to. I spend weeks and weeks uh, trying to find them because they, they in fact were, you know, had to basically remake their whole new, a whole new life and and um, almost new identities because um, of the stain of their daughter Abrar's actions. There were times that you were in Iraq that it wasn't terribly safe. How how did you keep yourself alive, and how did you keep yourself um, psychologically sane as you were hearing all these stories? Um, yeah, well, on the safety front, um, I I have um, I've always been able to work with an incredibly um, close knit um, team of Iraqis who, you know, I I don't um, 
there's there's no place for a foreigner to go and rent a car in Baghdad, right? You you rely on um, on teams that that help you do everything that you need to do, and um, I offer my thanks and gratitude to them in my acknowledgments, but they also deserve special shouts out um, at all times. You know, the Sudanese themselves are were in again incredibly generous and hospitable. I you know the people um, I- Iraqi. Iraqis in general are, are are very hospitable. It's one thing that, as someone you know who who um, who now you know lives in the southern U.S., I think again Americans would find that very very um, uh, reassuring and familiar as as cultural attributes. So you know they I um, you you go into locations and you go into interviews. I think with um, with a certain amount of deference and respect as a foreigner who's who's there to learn about other people's stories and and hopefully with the right introductions those are always trips that you know I've walked away from with with without you know having um been in in any mortal fear especially in Iraq but I think to to the larger um issue about keeping keeping your emotional um, core um, and, and not being torn apart by all the stories you hear. You know, one of the great things about being a journalist is you're recording the first draft of history. You're hearing people's stories firsthand. And, you know, I've never been good about following the rule of being emotionally detached from, from my interview subjects. When I'm someone who generally cries um, at those Christmas AT&T commercials. You know, when people come <laughs> home from, from um, you know, at Christmas time, you know, I'm, I'm someone who tears up uh, generally and, and find myself quite emotional. Um, Iraqis are too. Men are in Iraq as well. And so when you can sit and, you know, shed tears together, you know, when the Sudanese, in, when, when this, you know, dour, uh, you know, disciplinarian of um, Abu Harith, the father, told me of his remorse of, of losing his son and he's crying in front of me. I mean, my God, how can you how can you not cry as well? So I have done my due diligence. You know, I've de- checked and double-checked everybody's stories um, and I hope that I've treated everyone with a great deal of sympathy, um, but also there is an objectivity to the reporting in that I've, I've written what is true and told, pe- you know, told people's stories through the warts and all. And personally, I feel like I, you know, I'm a richer person for understanding um, other people's suffering. Yeah, I will confess I wasn't able to keep my emotions in check while I was reading this book. I'd like to pull back just for a moment, Margaret. You know, you have had a deep immersion in Iraq. How do you think about power, the concept of power, both in terms of U.S. invasion and sovereign right? Because when we started this conversation, we just quickly mentioned that the U.S. did invade Iraq, and then they left. And then there was a whole pattern of human intelligence at the direction of al-Basri, who helped stabilize Iraq. So how do you think about power um, after, after having lived and worked in Iraq? That's a very complicated question. You know, as 
through my years working in the Middle East, you know, I was the the Wall Street Journal's um, Middle East reporter for for many years before I went to the New York Times. I covered all of the Arab Spring revolutions, and you know, like I said at the beginning, I sort of come, I came to the Middle East with this background of of Sovietology, right, and understanding the both you know the power dynamics of Cold War states, um, authoritarian governments, and KGB dynamics. So from that point of view, you know. Iraq has a lot of overlap, unfortunately, with trying to reform its government and its relationship between government power and its citizens. And I don't, um, I don't want my next sentence to be misconstrued. I don't know that there is any justification for the um, abdication of power and responsibility that the U.S. has shown in its invasion of Iraq. Um, however, on one I think, unheralded and unappreciated fact, even to many Iraqis, with, in the aftermath of the U.S. invasion, is that Iraq actually has had a chance to recalibrate its whole relationship between individuals and the state, unlike other Arab Spring nations, right? I mean, when you look back at what happened in Egypt and then, or didn't, and look back at what happened in Libya and didn't, or Bahrain or Yemen, you know, there is still an authoritarianism that hasn't changed there. Iraq is not at all perfect. Iraq has some terrible people who are controlling the fate of of the political process right now. It has chaos and several very bad actors who who are malicious and, and who abuse their power against the civilians. But Iraqis have a deeper um, knowledge and, and I think uh, um, in sense of entitlement about where they stand vis-a-vis their own individuals against the government or individuals with the government. What I didn't want to do with my book is sort of rehash um, the legal aspects of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. I didn't want to re, um, revisit um, those um, very, very um, important political and legal foreign policy debates. What I wanted to do is tell stories about families and of unwitting heroes and unheralded characters who've played a large role in in modern Iraqi history. And so, um, you know, those individuals, by virtue of their actions, you know, they help to raise a new generation of Iraqis. Mm, a new world and uh, new generation, new opportunities. Right. Well, this is, yeah, this, I mean, this is a chance for uh, a policy lesson. Do you know, Margaret, what, what are the key players in this book doing today? We've touched on Abrar. Is al-Basri still engaged in security at a high level in Iraq? Well, yes, um, Abu Ali al-Basri. I mean, there's stability, political stability is not something that Iraq is blessed with right now. There was a, um, a government shakeup earlier this month, and the current prime minister, who um, used to be um, the head of the National Intelligence Service, so again, a rival agency to Abu, Abu Ali al-Basri's Falcon, mm. um, in this government shakeup of just in the last, the last few weeks, Abu Ali al-Basri has been sidelined. And um, his falcons are now being restructured um, away from where they have been, which is under the interior ministry, basically the homeland uh, 
you know, Homeland Security um, um, Department of Iraq and put under the military. So there's a shakeup in the works, and I'm not quite sure how that's all going to play out. And I, um, I don't think that Abu Ali al-Basri knows how that's all going to play out. Within the Sudani family, though, Munaf Sudani um, has, well, again, spoiler alerts, you know, the... Um, Harvest Sudanese um, fate wasn't um, wasn't a happy one. Um, Munaf, the younger brother who was his handler, you know, he was so um, distraught about about the way in which um, his brother's career ended that he couldn't um, he couldn't stay working in the counterterrorism um, arena, and he moved to another. Um, another specialty, another department. Um, he has been, for the last two, two and a half years, helping to solve major crimes, organized crime um, in Baghdad. Oh, wow. Yeah, so putting a lot of the same skill set to um, to a much more definitive and, and domestic security threat of organized crime. Um, Harris' um, wife and his children, you know, there's, they're continuing to, to grow up. Um, Harris' wife uh, continues to live in Sadr City with, with, um, with her in-laws. Um, Harris' oldest daughter um, got married last year. In part, um, in this betrothal and engagement, the bridegroom, um, the fiancé, you know, his family was, was drawn to, to this um, to this match in part because um, they knew Harris' daughter as the daughter of the hero. Again, my guest is Margaret Coker. Her new book, The Spy Master of Baghdad, was just released. It's an incredible story. And Margaret, before I let you go, uh, you are now the editor-in-chief of The Current, which is an investigative news startup in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, What kind of stories is your team focused on? And tell us about your sort of journalistic lens. Yeah, well... You know, as I've said, I, I grew up um, wanting to be a foreign correspondent. I thought that, you know, coming with this perhaps old fashioned and unappreciated view that, you know, journalism in America is is a public service. You know, we, we hold the powerful to account and the, our, our best iterations. And I thought it was... Um, it was a public service to go overseas and tell Americans what their government was doing in their name and how U.S. foreign policy was affecting um, other countries. And when I came back home to Savannah to finish writing Spymaster, uh, you know, I had I was ready to make um, America my full-time home again. And, and I felt like that same um, ethos of, of public service journalism, um, it was high time that that, um, that was revived for America itself. Americans need to know more about their own government and what's going on in their own backyard. And so um, I finished my book and then COVID hit. And, you know, with all the COVID mm-hmm. ways in which we were all sheltering in place last year, um, I my, my book launch was delayed. And in that interim, I found an enormous, um, you know, willingness among um, business leaders here and community activists here in coastal Georgia um, to put some money behind uh, this new startup called The Current. So we are filling mm-hmm. a news vacuum in, in a state that has gotten a lot of attention in the election year, but it's a place where um, local news has completely dried up over the last decade, you know, with the 
closure of, of local newspapers and consolidation of mainstream media, there has been um, no news outlet that's really um, dedicated to in-depth investigative and accountability news in a very important part of, of the state. So the the impetus was there for me to, to try and fill um, this news hole. And I have gathered an incredible team of very experienced um, journalists here in Georgia. We um, are focused on issues related to um, social justice, environmental justice, economic development issues, and touching on on you know longer form stories that um, that don't get enough attention. At WERA and Arlington Independent Media, we are big advocates of local journalism, and anytime a news outlet can fill. Uh, news vacuum and avoid. It's an act of heroism. It just serves to underscore your philosophy as a journalist and what you have brought to this complex story in Iraq. Margaret, I can't thank you enough for joining Real Fiction today. It's been a real education. Thanks for the time. It's been a fun discussion. You've been listening to Real Fiction on WERA FM 96.7. Find out more about today's guest at margaretcoker.com and The Current, a source for independent journalism in coastal Georgia. The website is thecurrentga.org. All episodes and guest profiles are archived on realfictionradio.com. Thanks for listening.